Hello and welcome to Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show, where this time we're going to be talking about Crater 101, which is part two in a moon-based trilogy of the 1960s show Captain Scarlet, which is part of the Jerry Anderson Super Marionation universe. I'm here with my co-host. How are you doing, Rick? Uh, I'm good, yes. Still locked down. Yeah, still locked down here, which is why we're doing these Captain Scarlet episodes as well. So you and I have kind of different perspectives on the episode, whereas I'm coming at it from, oh, how would this work on the moon? And that doesn't seem right. Oh, that could work. That seems plausible for all moon-related things. Whereas yours is from a military perspective? Uh, yes, yeah. For those that don't know, that it's not, hopefully not just two people talking about a show for six hours or 20 minutes, <laughs> as, is, as is podcasting standard nowadays. But hopefully it will be backed up by a bit of science or engineering or fact, or actually this is how reality does the thing. So yeah, I'm not a moon expert. Uh, regular listeners to the show will know. Uh, however, I did end up, as part of my reserve forces training, ended up doing leadership training at Sandhurst which is the UK officer training establishment for the land forces. The thing that I picked up about the <laughs> Captain Scarlet, or the, the whole organisation of Spectrum was their command and control capability. So uh, that will be my running theme through the episode, rather than hang on that gravity doesn't quite work out there. Or yeah, exactly. Why is, that, why is that making noise in space or something? Well, yeah, I hope that we don't come across as too nitpicky and, ah, well, actually. No, it's it's kind of like pointing out things that are inconsistent within the universe of the episode and maybe if one or two other little heads-ups of, oh, that that's kind of cool or that's very, very wrong kind of thing. So hopefully it's not too nitpicky. So I said before this is uh, part two of the Moonbase trilogy, so... The previous episode was called Lunaville 7, which is one we have actually done an episode on. So a bit of a recap of the previous episode. Lunaville 7 is a colony on the moon and it's part of like a huge complex. There's lots of different Lunavilles. I think there's Lunaville 4 where they refine the water for the other moon bases. Uh, but Lunaville 7 has the lunar controller. So it's kind of like the Washington DC of the Lunavilles on the moon. And they have seceded from Earth saying, we are our own nation. We are not part of your stupid war with the Mistrons. We're seceding from Earth and therefore we're a neutral party in this war of fear with the Mysterons or war of nerves with the Mysterons. And turns out he was a Mysteron. So when Captain Scarlet and Captain Blue and Lieutenant Green all go to the moon, hijinks happen and they're like, oh, oh, we knew he was a Mysteron agent after all. And they're sent out to look at a crater in the Humboldt Sea where they suspect there might be a Mysteron base. Turns out there is some mysterious activity in this crater, Crater 101, which is the episode we'll be talking about today. So in true Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet, Jerry Anderson fashion, they go back to Lunaville 7, blow it up, come back to Earth and go, well, that was our findings. End of the episode. That's a fair summary. I missed out the bit though that um, Lunaville 7 couldn't produce its own water. Did we talk about that last time? Because if I was going to secede as a nation, say we're fully independent, I'd at least have a water supply. <laughs> <laughs> no, they do. It's in like Lunaville 4, or there's like most of our water is refined there. I think he was speaking on behalf of everyone on the moon, not just this one base. Ah, right. Fine. Otherwise, yeah, that would be a bit of a, a stupid move. Crater 101 is the second part of this trilogy, and Crater 101, a quick overview of what the episode is about. At the beginning, Colonel White is saying, oh, the photographs you took of Crater 101 and the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that's sent back these images of a Mr. on base in Crater 101. We have a mission for you. It's in two halves. One, you need to go into the Mr. on base and you need to steal the energy source, the one that we think, we think, helps them regenerate, so un underlining the word think there, and then once you've got the crystal source that stops them from regenerating, blow up the base. So that's the mission, and it pretty much folds out like that. Captain Scarlet goes to the lunar base with Lieutenant Green and Captain Blue. They get in the moonmobile, go to Crater 101, steal the source. Ah, but there is another Mr. on Agent on Lunaville 6 this time who is 
throw in an obstacle their way and put in a bomb next to it, but it's going to go off a bit earlier, but you all know they're going to escape because Captain Scarlet and everyone survives. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Andy. I, I thought the point of Captain Scarlet actually occasionally doesn't survive, uh, which threw me as a kid, as I remember. Uh, no, he, he always survives. In the long run, yeah. Yeah, in the long run. I, I remember watching an episode as a kid and just coming into the back end of a, an episode and, you know, it was that bomb-type sequence. It wasn't this one, but it was a different one. And the bomb's ticking down, and I thought, oh, yeah, he'll get away. And then it was like, zero, boom, and he went. And I was like, well, what the hell? Do you know <laughs> what? I know exactly the episode you're talking about, and that is Big Ben Strikes Again, and that is the one where it's an atomic bomb in the back of a lorry, and they have to go into a lift and detonate the bomb, like, way, way, way beneath the earth, because it's an atomic bomb. And, yeah, Captain Scarlet's in, in the hub, and you're like, okay, this, this is counting down. There's no way he's going to get out of it. And you're right. Boom! He just He's just detonated. Yeah, I thought, oh, okay, uh, right. Well, I'm going to have my dinner now. Captain Scarlet's dead. Um, I didn't quite get the premise of the show that I think it adds this tension that actually you don't know if he's going to survive or not uh, each episode. It does in the early ones, definitely. Uh, like, it has that element of, well, we think he'll survive, but we don't know. But at this point in episode 21, you're like, yes, I'm pretty sure he'll be fine. Uh, so that, that's a quick synopsis of Crater 101. Rick, what were your initial thoughts of the episode? Uh, the whole episode, I thought, once again, was very pacey. I mean, to be... What do you mean by pacey? My comments on the last one was very utilitarian, and this is the same one in terms of plot, because basically people, you go into a scene and you say, all right, we have to do this, then they go to the next place, hi, we're here, we're doing this, yeah, yes, you do that, and then they go and do it, and they go, oh, there's a thing, right, deal with the thing, and you rush through the episode. Bear in mind that I've uh, been reading things like Lord of the Rings and um, <laughs> well, I'm watching The Crown on Netflix where nothing happens, you know, or it's all character development and, and there's only one thing happening at a time and, and people don't rush to get there sort of thing, just in terms of plot and stuff. I mean, it's a kid's show as well. It was unfair of me last time, I think, to say this is this is far too quick. There's no character development whatsoever. <laughs> um, it, so this time I will say, no, it's good and I get what they're doing because they're trying to push towards the different sets and models and techniques and stuff they're using. And actually this one had, you know, pretty good technique, uh, special effects for the Robot Wars type moon battles and stuff like that. And uh, the moon base, um, obviously something blew up because that seems to happen every episode in a Super Mario Nation production. Absolutely. But yeah, if you put it into the thing of, right, actually we're going to have to push around lots of different sets, lots of different models and sort of push the boundaries of what this sort of marionette-based special effect is going to do, then uh, the, the plot serves it very well. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, actually, that the special effects and marionation techniques are spectacular in this particular episode, and they really pushed it. There were some bits that were very naff, but there were others that was like, actually, that is quite amazing that you were managed to do that with a puppet. In terms of like the plot, it is very methodical and A to B to C to D, and okay, boom, we're off. You can't compare it to the likes of Mad Men or The Sopranos in subtlety and character development and overarcs and themes when it is a kid show with puppets about evil, invisible monsters. <laughs> yeah, I think also that if they had, I don't know, done Mad Men or The Crown in puppet format, whilst that's amusing, um, <laughs> if they did sort of beat beat for beat scenes, actually a lot of it would be dull because it's just a puppet sat in a chair talking to someone else across the table. Not even that, they'd just be sat drinking alone for the majority of the episode. <laughs> And it'd be quite funny watching the whiskey spill out of the hand on all over the puppet. Yeah, you'd lose a lot of what makes these character-filled entertainment or dramas what they are. Because also, the puppets, by definition, are wooden actors. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can move their, lip, their bottom lip up and down and their eyes slightly left and right. Beyond that, they've not got much intonation. So a bit of a tangent with that, Thunderbirds is a lot more engaging for children because the heads of the puppets 
puppets are bigger, so the proportions are off. And the reason the heads were bigger was so the eyes could have more movement and the lips could move a bit better. Uh, but Jerry Anderson wanted to make Captain Scarlet a bit more serious and a bit more realistic. That's why the heads are a lot smaller on Captain Scarlet, because they're in proportion to the size of the body. So it's a bit more realistic, but you lose a lot of the facial dexterity. Uh, and also, you never see puppets walk in Captain Scarlet because they could never walk quite rightly in Thunderbirds. So Jerry Anderson wanted this show to be taken a bit more seriously. So that's why you never see them walk. Oh, okay. In fact, this episode is probably one of the only ones you do, and that's because they're in low gravity and they're just able to do, oh, we'll just lift them up and it's a bit more realistic that they're on the moon. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, they do take themselves more seriously. So was Captain Scarlet done after Thunderbirds? Yeah, Captain Scarlet was like 68, whereas Thunderbirds was 65, 66, or maybe a bit earlier, but it was around that era, but Captain Scarlet came afterwards. And also Captain Scarlet is more serious than Thunderbirds. The rule in Thunderbirds is no one dies, everyone survives, except for the movies where Lady Penelope does actually gun down someone. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Assuming a baddie as well, not just <laughs> someone. She just does a drive-by. Come on, Parker, we're going to the school. Uh, no, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a bad guy helicopter and they've got a machine gun built into the front of Fab One and they just gun down a helicopter full of bad guys. Oh, well done her. <laughs> did, uh, did she, yeah. Sorry, did she actually gun down it or did she order Parker to do it? Well, she ordered Parker to do it, but it's still her orders. Yeah. And it's not like Parker was there with the Tommy gun going, do, 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 and he just pushed the button. I've committed mass murder, you lady. <laughs> Very good, Parker. Getting back on track, uh, my overall thought of the episode was it was good, but not as smart as other episodes as Captain Scarlet and not as engaging. This one's fairly mundane in terms of what what's going on, even though it is set on the moon. There's far more interesting episodes of Captain Scarlet. There's no possible doubt that shot proves conclusively Crater 101 on the far side of the moon houses a Mysteron complex. Yes, Colonel. We were shocked when we saw it from the moonmobile. It must, of course, be destroyed as soon as possible. When do we leave, sir? Wait, there's something else. Here's the plan. So, yeah, there's, there's my first point, that Captain Scarlet's just going to head off without a plan. Generally, military planning takes hours, if not days or weeks. The idea that someone just gets up just, all oh, right, yeah, there's a base. All right, I'll sort it. I said, well, do you know what you're doing? Do you know what anyone else is doing? Are you, are you going to take resources with you? What, what ammunition are you taking? <laughs> Who, what, what radio frequency are you using? What, what are you actually doing? Are you just running away? So, uh, yeah, I did like the, the sort of, wait, I've got a plan. Or just, just, <laughs> just at least wait until you've heard the plan. So, um, yeah, that was a bit odd. Just a tad. It has been decided to divide the operation into two distinct assignments. Two assignments, Colonel? Yes, Captain Blue. And the other thing is there's a surprise that there's two assignments. Imagine the Mysterons are kind of like ISIS or <laughs> a terrorist group or something like that. And you're at a military base and say, OK, ISIS have set up a base. We're going to have to do two assignments. And someone goes, two assignments? It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, come on. You've joined the military. You know, just, well, all right, OK, yeah, one, one assignment per enemy base. That's the rules. You know, that's the trade union rules. And not only that, you have to do both assignments at the same time. Like, step one, go here. OK, I've done that. Step two, destroy the thing. It's like, but I, I thought we were doing them two weeks, two weeks apart. I had like two weeks of holiday planned in between the two and I didn't realise they had to be both done at the same time. Yeah, that's it as well, because it's usually, it's, it's standard for any operation to be split into multiple phases. Usually the prepare, where you prepare, the approach, where you approach the situation, the execution of whatever you're doing, and then the withdrawal. So the idea that these military people are suddenly, whoa, oh, hang on, whoa, uh, this is going a bit far. You're giving us two tasks, you know, well, Gareth, steady on. So hang on, infiltrate, execute, withdrawal. This plan only has two phases, so therefore they haven't done the withdrawal phase. So they're just going <laughs> to yeah. be stuck on the moon. Yeah, yeah. No, well, they might be until someone turns up afterwards and then gives them an order to come back, because they can only have one order in their head at a time. Um, so that, that, that slightly threw me, that they were so surprised at those two phases. Well, I think the rest of it is going to throw you even, even more. The second is to destroy the Mysteron complex. Arrangements have been made with the Lunar authorities to carry this out. And the first? 
And the first is more dangerous. It involves a calculated risk of the first magnitude. So the question I have is, what is a calculated risk of the first magnitude? I work in risk assessment. I mean, that's a fantastic phrase. I'm going to use that, but I'm not entirely sure what it means. Is it big or... Because an order of magnitude is usually a multiple of 10. Yeah, or exactly. A, sorry, uh, yeah. How many zeros after this? So you say, how much How much does a, a, a skyscraper cost to build? Just give us an order of magnitude. You know, well, it's not £100 and it's not £40 billion. It's like, oh, order of magnitude for a skyscraper is about £100 million. Yeah. So the first order of magnitude is like one. <laughs> so, so. But that could be like DEFCON 9, which is actually yeah, not I mean, bad at all. I suppose, you know, a probability of one is certainty. But it, 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 as, as a risk assessor, I don't know what a calculated risk of the first magnitude do you know what could have happened? It could have been in the script that the calculated risk has been 20 bajillion risks. And <laughs> someone put a note saying, like, make this sound better. Mm, yeah. Highest magnitude, that'll do. Yes. If we try to destroy that complex, presumably the Mistrons will use their powers to reconstruct it. Therefore, it has been decided to send a volunteer party into Crater 101, into the Mistron complex. Objective? to find and remove the power source from the complex. What I do like uh, is that Colonel White outlines the mission plan of, okay, phase one, go in, uh, infiltrate the crystal, that'll prevent them from regenerating. Phase two, blow up the base. That is the plan. And then it goes to the title sequences. And then after the title sequences, it just cuts onto the characters' faces, implying that after this, they've just been sat around while Colonel White's like, any volunteers? Anyone at all? The three people in the same room with me? <laughs> yes, it is one of those things where you, you don't have much room to hide as the <laughs> three people in the room. And I'm looking at you, Captain Scarlet, because you literally stood up and went. You said, okay, there's a moon base. You were going. Yeah. Right, so the idea <laughs> so the idea you're not going to volunteer now is is nonsense. Just on the mission objectives, generally you introduce mission one before two. Uh, otherwise you confuse the troops. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so we blow up the base, then get the crystal. It's like a mission saying, well, we take the hostages out in the helicopter uh, and then we approach the building, And but that's before we've rescued them, although that's after we've blown up the doors, which is after the helicopter, and that's the doors of the building we're blowing up to get into the hostages. <laughs> not, it's just, no, no, you, you, you do what's called a scheme of manoeuvre, where you say, this is going to happen, a, B, and C, this is what's going to happen in, in your phase. And then you go on to the next sort of phase of the mission so everyone knows what everyone's doing through the whole mission rather than, I'm just going to jump around with objectives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Otherwise, it, it becomes like the plot of Tenet where it's just everything in reverse. <laughs> yeah, some sort of memento. Type. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very Nolan. Right, you've all had time to consider. As I said, this assignment is on a volunteer basis. I'm ready to go, sir. Thank you, Lieutenant. As the electronics expert, you will play a vital part in the operation. Count me in, sir. Thank you, Captain. I know I can rely on you. Uh, well, Colonel, I am due for 48 hours furlough in Miami, but I couldn't really relax knowing the kind of trouble these two would get into without me. I'm ready, Colonel. Thank you, Captain Scarlet. Colonel White's like, good luck, gentlemen. At the end, there's nothing else other than the, the awkward, so, any volunteers? <laughs> so... I guess, yeah, uh, Captain Scarlet, when he stood up earlier, he wasn't going on the mission. He was just going, well, I'm off on furlough, so... Uh... I, I do love how it's a voluntary mission, but you're the only three here. And then it awkwardly waits for a long time while the titles are going. And then it just implies that they've just been sat in silence while they've been contemplating whether to go on it. Lieutenant Green pipes up saying, like, I'm in, Colonel. Good. Captain Plucky Blue is like, oh, I'm always in. Thank you, Captain Blue. I knew I could count on you. Captain Scarlet's silent for a bit. It's like, so, Captain Scarlet, the one person who is guaranteed survival for this entire mission, the one person who can probably do this and survive, do you volunteer for the mission that will ultimately fail if you don't take part in it? Hmm? Yeah, I mean, it's no skin off his nose to some extent. He's missing <laughs> his furlough, but, like, the others are risking their lives. He's risking a bit of time, I suppose. Um, <laughs> The thing is, with the indestructibleness, it does drop the stakes or lowers the stakes a lot uh, in terms of, you know, oh, there's a bomb. Oh, sorry, it's, it's, it's invariant, really. He's, he's going to lose a week while he regenerates, but that bomb is not going to kill him. 
Yeah, exactly. It's a massive high stakes drama for anyone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If anything, just send Captain Scarlet on every voluntary mission. The other, the others don't need to be there. It's like the the stakes are now lower. Is as though instead of a bomb, it's someone turning up with a a court order saying, "Well, because of littering, you're going to jail for five days." It lowers the t- you know, will he or will he not go to jail for five days and have his life temporarily suspended, uh, his dreams on hold for those week in prison? You know, it's that sort of okay. Yeah, it's interesting, but it's not death. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Although I guess in this one, the stakes would be. It's on the moon and in a Mistron base, and considering Captain Scarlet is indestructible because of the Mistrons, could this revoke his indestructibleness? They didn't even introduce that to the script, but that would have added a bit more stakes to it, I guess. Yeah, they could have tried. They added other things. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, what? Sorry, explain to me again, what are all the sort of angels and other things in the credits? Because why weren't they at this meeting? Oh, okay, so Spectrum... You've got Colonel White, then you've got the captains, and the angels are the pilots of the... uh, I think they're called angels, or angel snipers. Hang on, let me just type this in. The angel flight is the collective name for the flights of female pilots who serve as cloud bases, line of defense. I'm just trying to find the name of the actual rockets they use. Angel interceptor, that's what they're called. They're these like nifty little red arrows, but they're white, and they're piloted by women on base and their destiny symphony rhapsody melody and harmony yeah the, re- the the reason they don't go off on the missions is their base defense they have to stay on the base and be ready to hop into the interceptors at a moment's notice oh, okay so i think that always did kind of stick out to me in the opening titles is we're in the graveyard now for captain black because he's evil and therefore he hangs around a graveyard. Why isn't he in something like a barber shop or off anywhere? Why does it have to be a graveyard to indicate he's evil? We know he's evil. He's called Captain Black and he looks like he's got a hangover all the time. Yeah, I think they're making it very, very clear what's going on. Hmm. I don't, he's not a very good spy, though. He doesn't seem to be in the meetings. Well, Captain, <laughs> Captain Black's not a spy. He's Mr. Wrong Agent who has been, it's just been infiltrated. He, he's still under the Mistron's power. And it had to be Captain Black, didn't it? It couldn't be Captain Ochre or Captain Magenta. It had to be the evil sounding one with a cool name like Captain Black. So does he actually work for Spectrum anymore? So in the first episode, Captain Scarlet and Captain Black were off on a mission. And that's when the Mistron sent out their initial warning of will attack president of the earth or something like that so captain black and captain scarlet are off on uh rendezvous to pick them up and then the mr on strike the car they're in it careens off the road kills captain black kills captain scarlet they're both mr on agents now but over the course of the episode captain scarlet gets thrown off a skyscraper well it's not a skyscraper it's a massive tall car park but it gets thrown off the top of it and he survives the fall but he's no longer under the influence of the mistrons so therefore he's still got the mistron powers but not a mistron agent whereas captain black still a mistron agent okay cool but does captain black still turn up to like spectrum meetings or something or do they all know he's an agent he's gone they all know he's he's evil they all know he's he's no longer one of them so why is he still wearing their uniform? I think he only wears the uniform in the title credits. Okay. They were like, we made the puppet for it. We may as well reuse it again. Okay, right. Because that's it's like, well, you're not Captain Black anymore. You're, you know, Dave <laughs> Smithington or whatever your name was. Because you're now out of the organisation. You can't keep the title. Yeah. Turn in your hat and your Spectrum boots, please. Yeah. Okay. Because I thought he was a spy and he was, he's turning up to meetings and saying what's going on. But uh, no, he just hangs around in a graveyard. And in the two episodes I've seen, he's not done anything. Yeah. Captain Black doesn't appear on the moon. He's in some of the better episodes, like um, Big Ben Strikes Again or something like that. But he doesn't really need to turn up to Spectrum meetings because the Mistrons know everything. They can... They... they, they <laughs> Sorry. Do, they, the Mistrons know everything. Well, what, well, why do they need a spy then? He's not a spy. He's an agent. He's been... Okay. He's, he's like their conduit on Earth. He's under their influence and he's the guy who kind of like tricks people or he will basically pull the levers behind the scenes. The problem with this is the Mistrons can do absolutely anything. They can control vehicles, so you don't really need human hands to do it for you, but they can also control people. They can do absolutely anything to the point where you're watching some episodes, especially like this one, where there'll be an attack on the base, and it's like, well, why didn't they just jam the moonmobile? Why didn't they just 
stop this from happening in the first place? It's because they've kind of painted themselves into a corner. Well, oh, we need some tension. Yeah, I mean, well, because in a simple sense, you know, Colonel White could say, any volunteers, and the Mistrons control everyone and say, no, no, no one's volunteering. Ah, that's the one rule, though. <laughs> Mistrons, sworn enemies of Earth, possessing the ability to recreate an exact likeness of an object or person, but first, they must destroy. So they need to kill the person in order to infiltrate them. Okay, right. Which is where it works with Captain Black and Captain Scarlet. Okay, but they can control objects without destroying them. No, they have to destroy the object first. Okay. Which they do forget occasionally, but... Like, there's one episode where they destroy an entire plane that's just full of people, and they just crash it into the ocean, and then they recreate the plane, and it lands at the airport, and then it's just sat on the runway doing nothing, and then it just starts careening through the airport, taking out all these buildings and other planes. Genuinely quite distressing when you think, there were thousands of people on that plane, and you've just killed them all over the ocean. Yeah, the Mistrons really should be able to take over Earth, because if they destroy a plane, they've got, I don't know, 300 people under their control, and then those 300 can go and destroy something else. Or There's no reason why there are four people in a moon base or whatever this is is going to stop them. <laughs> I think it's called the War of Nerves, which is the war between Earth and Mars. And the reason why it's the War of Nerves is because Mistrons could wipe out everyone on Earth if they wanted to in a moment's notice, but they drag it out. They just keep attacking and just keep doing these like little stings and these little hits and operations that just constantly add fear and constantly just undermine Earth and just add a constant sense of distress. So that's why it's the War of Nerves. They could wipe them out. Also, it's a television show and they need to string it out for 30 episodes. <laughs> so episode one, Miles wins. Da, 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 da. Thank you for tuning in. But that's yeah. one of the reasons why. It's the war of nerves, so they're stringing it out. Okay, we need to get back on track. We do need to get back on track. <laughs> Went on a big tangent of Captain Scarlet lore, but I think that kind of adds to why, why the Mistrons do what they do. One of the first things that I noticed were when they land on Lunaville 6, which, by the way, is meant to be smaller, but they use the same footage. And I can completely understand why. It takes ages to build a moon base, even as a model, so let's just reuse the footage. But Lunaville 6, you've got Miss Nolan, who is the commander of Lunaville 6, who is voiced by Sylvia Anderson, by the way. It's the same person who does the voice of Lady Penelope. That's probably why the voice might have sounded a bit familiar. She is with her fabulous-looking assistant called Fraser, who looks like a Thal from the Peter Cushing Doctor Who movies. Have you seen what they look like? I don't know, but I assume you'll put a side-by-side -side on the uh, video. Uh, I will. I'll send you a photo <laughs> of what the Thals look like now. So Fraser looks like a Thal, and he looks particularly fabulous. None of the other puppets look as fabulous as him. He's got, like, these impeccable eyebrows, this gorgeous eyeshadow, and not even the lady puppets have this. Which threw me completely. It's like, why, why is Fraser all fabulous in this episode? <laughs> I thought it might be a case of they're reusing a puppet, but I don't recognise the character of Fraser in anything else, unless... They just thought, we've reused this puppet so much, we'll have to change his face a little. How can we change it? Mm, put some makeup on him, that'll do. So, completely different person. But it doesn't really matter because Fraser's only in this episode and then he's never seen him again. So, Fraser and Miss Nolan are talking through the plan and saying like, right, you're going to take the Moonmobile and you're going to go over the lunar horizon to Crater 101. And it's quite important they mention the lunar horizon because this means that they're out of radio contact from Earth because they're on the far side of the moon. And that makes sense. When you're on the far side of the moon, there's a big hunk of rock between you and Earth. So you're not going to be able to talk and receive radio messages. However, that's from Earth. If you're on the lunar base and they go over the lunar horizon, surely there's like a transmission range. It's not going to the far side of the moon from the base. It's just the far side of the moon from Earth. And because this is on, it's not on the near side, as far as I can tell, you still should be able to go all the way around unless it is directly on the near side. What do you think? Uh, yes, it depends. They, they say the base is two hours drive away in the moonmobile. Yeah. Which I don't know, <laughs> after last time's discussion, 
of how fast the moonmobile goes, two hours is probably about, well, it's only 10 feet away. But, but the, the other thing you would do in the military is you set up rebro stations, if you can. And if the intermediate terrain is not hostile, you just say, well, let's, let's get a signals unit in or multiple signals units. And everyone just set up a rebro station so you, you can get comms to that, that location. We don't have to go in in millip- sorry, in radio silence and completely out of comms. So it was one of those, yeah, it's it's plot and it makes it all very tense, but actually there's there's ways around it. Oh, not only is there ways around it, the plot is flimsy as anything. So the plan is Captain Scarlet and Carol go to Crater 101 in the Moonmobile. Then Fraser is going to come along in the Lunar Tank or the Lunar something, and it's got a bomb on it, and he is going to drop the bomb at Crater 101. Why didn't they just put the bomb on the Moonmobile when they took that with them, as opposed to just having these two <laughs> separate things? Yeah, I also w- took that saying, well, what if your objective is this, i.e. if you are Fraser and your objective is to blow up or, uh, Captain Scarlet and, and his mates, why didn't you just get a gun out at this briefing and just shoot the lot of them? Uh, because because <laughs> then your, your lunar base is safe as well, because your plan requires you to set off an atomic bomb near your own base, which is generally a bad idea. Why not just do an atomic bomb literally now? Yeah, yes, that's exactly what, what I thought during my notes. And they're like, oh, the bomb is going to go off two hours ahead of schedule. It's like, sod it, why not make it 10 minutes? Because they have enough time to discover that, oh, no, it was ahead of schedule. It's like, just make the bomb go off as soon as you get there. Don't, no, don't even get there. That's what I'm saying. Just leave, it's your base if you're a Mistrons. You don't want to blow it up. You don't need to blow up your own base. If you've got an agent in an enemy base, you just pull out a gun around the mission briefing table, shoot everyone, done. You know, and so not only does your base survive, you've actually captured uh, an Earth base. Ah, yes, but the small problem is Captain Scarlet is indestructible, so if you shoot him, he'll come back. How, yeah, I thought there was a regeneration time. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. When he's knocked out, you could just, like, drag him out and just leave him outside. Yeah, well, the other thing I was thinking of, so here's a bit of Captain Scarlet lore I need to know. If you got Captain Scarlet and just put him in a cage and put him on the Mister on planet, is that the Captain Scarlet issue solved as long as no one opens the cage? Uh, probably. Right. Because I, I was thinking this, like, if he blows up in space, he's got a hell of a life ahead of him, just regenerating in space, suffocating, regenerating, suffocating. <laughs> Yeah. Can you throw him into the sun? Probably. Because then he just regenerate, burn, regenerate, burn. So there is a level of tension, I suppose, but it's not if he gets killed, it's if he gets captured and just put into this sort of eternal torture state. Yeah, which is quite dark, actually. And he'll just be thinking about how he failed his friends for eternity. Yeah, I I wouldn't have volunteered. Um, so while, while they're at the, the Luda base, Miss Nolan gives Captain Scarlet a charm which says... To Linda Nolan, the CB-29 Neptune probe, July 10th, 2058. We made it ahead of schedule. Which is a little charm that she was given because she was part of the Neptune probes that did some lunar exploration, I think. Uh, either way, she's a scientist. This is her little medal of, yeah, you did good, kid. She gives it to Captain Scarlet as a good luck charm. Pretty sure this is the same charm that was used in the Thunderbirds movie. And I expected them to recycle the plot here and actually, oh, it's it's got a bug on it and it's got a transmitter, so then they'll be able to keep tabs on people. But they didn't go down that route, which is quite good because it's exactly the same plot as the Thunderbirds movie. But she gives him this charm, which will come up later on in what I think is another quite convoluted, pointless plot diversion but anyway gives them the charm and then they're off on their way and while they're going to the lunar crater that's when Fraser's mannerisms all turn very strange and go Fraser are you all right yes I'm fine your instructions will be carried out in a very evil tone and as soon as someone says it like that you know they're evil Uh, it wasn't just that it was the entire orchestra that kicks off I think that's quite typical of uh, Captain Scarlet, though, of just, like, really over-the-top. It's quite 60s and quite camp, really, isn't it? But on that note, it's good that he tells the uh, Lunar Base his, his plan. Well, Mistrons always tell people the plan at the beginning. It's part of the War of Nerves. Uh, but yes, it is very, uh, like, ooh, spooky music. So, yeah, in this scene, I'd like to talk to you about Mission Command Verbs. 
So if you're giving orders in the military, if you tell someone to attack something, like attack a bridge or destroy a bridge or capture a bridge or seize a bridge, these all mean different things and they're formalised in NATO doctrine. Oh, okay. So if you're working with a NATO partner and you say seize that village, everyone should know what that means. So they shouldn't sort of come in with an airstrike, um, which they shouldn't do anyway if there's <laughs> civilians about, but... You, even if the village is empty, you shouldn't just come in with an airstrike and say, oh, you said seize the village. Said, well, no, seize it doesn't mean destroy it. Destroy means destroy. So there's a, a very formalised mechanism for mission commands, and this is the sort of mission verbs, and they're well-defined, and you can look them up on the internet if you're interested. They teach you this at Sandhurst, or indeed the junior ranks command courses, where if you shout during a battle, you know, take out the enemy, uh, you'll inevitably get some directing staff shouting back at you, going, take them out to where? A restaurant. <laughs> you know, so, so you are, you've got to get into this mentality of, are you destroying the enemy? Are you disrupting them just to keep, suppress them whilst another unit does something? Okay. You don't need to destroy them. You just have to keep their heads down in the trench while another unit is doing a manoeuvre or something. So they, they, they try and train you to be very precise in your language. If we go <laughs> watch this clip then, so it sets me off. What do we know about the vehicles which were building the complex? They are unmanned lunar vehicles. This larger one controls the operation. Well, the plan of attack is obvious. Knock out the control vehicle, then tackle the complex. We have decided to use a low-yield atomic device to destroy the complex after you have had time to investigate it. Good. When do we leave? At once. That gives you six hours, Captain Scarlet. Two to get to Crater 101 and four hours to remove the power source and get clear. Right, we're on our way. If you look at the number of verbs they're using, so one it's, oh, we're going to tackle the enemy and knock out the vehicle. So knock out is not a verb. If you're going to destroy the vehicle, you destroy it, or you capture it, or you seize it, or you um, disrupt it. Those are all things, but knock out the vehicle is not a recognised term. Tackling the base, is that the, what? You're going to run up to it like a rugby player and just... Um, <laughs> And, and then she says something like, oh, and then after your investigation. So there's this sort of inherent confusion as someone who is uh, trying to understand what the actual mission is because they keep using different terms, which makes sense as a script writer because you're, yeah, why not? But as a military person looking at that, you're going, this is a, an absolute cluster waiting to happen. <laughs> no, no one knows what the actual mission is. And once again, they're delivering it in a different order because they're saying, oh, well, we'll knock out the vehicle. Oh, how are you going to get there? Well, I'll take the moon rover or whatever. Yeah. And it's just this, oh, God, flipping. They need to learn the NATO orders format, which uh, you can go on Wikipedia and learn that if you're interested. It'll be in the show notes. So uh, just so you know how orders work, in case you're interested, because uh, the military have been doing orders and planning for a long time. <laughs> uh, so, whereas Captain Scarlet, obviously they don't have the, the time to, um, to dedicate to a full orders briefing, which would last an hour or two. Uh, <laughs> so that would knock out the episode or, and have a lot fewer special effects. There's a five-paragraph orders format. You can look it up. So the first paragraph or section is what's the situation, what are the enemy forces, what are their strengths, dispositions, what are they doing, what are the friendly forces doing, have we got any attachments or detachments, and who are all these people in the unit at the moment, and where's all the civilians, and what are they doing. The second, and that's just a situational awareness, the second paragraph is a mission, what are we actually trying to do, why, where, and when, so it's absolutely clear to everyone. Yeah. The third paragraph is your execution, so this is your scheme of manoeuvre, how everyone's going to behave, what is everyone's task, what are the coordinating instructions. So when you do this, you send this radio signal to them and or this code word to them and they'll start doing that or do not cross that bridge until this has been secured type thing. Yeah. Then four is the administration and support of where's all the ammunition going to be kept? What are we going to do with casualties? What are we going to do with prisoners of war? Where's all the food, ammunition, specialist equipment we might need? Where's all that going to be on the battlefield? Uh, and then the last bit is command and signal, which is what are all our radio channels? What's all the code words? What's our you know primary communications, secondary, contingency, emergency? Where are all the commanders going to be on this during the battle okay. operation? So there's this whole thing just to understand what is going on in a mission. And if you have that in your mind and you've sat through hours of briefings, to watch this where they're saying, I'm going to tackle the base. Yeah, take a vehicle. All right, off we go. Here we go. <laughs> just the amount. 
the amount of information that is not there is is amazing. Yeah, that's a fair point. I guess it's like how going to film school ruins films for you. You learn how things are meant to be done properly, so when you're watching just a movie, you're spotting all these mistakes, spotting all these editing inconsistencies because you've been taught how to do it properly. So I'm, I'm guessing it's kind of like that. So you, you're well-versed in a topic, you were exposed to that topic in a fairly casual manner and your brain is just like, oh, mm, mm, no, not quite correct. Mm, mm. So it can be quite frustrating. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Especially at, uh, you know, military training. If you start going around saying tackle the enemy and <laughs> knock out this, that and the other, you'd end up going for a long run. The, the sergeant major would sort of say, well, that tree on the distance, you know, go and get me a leaf off it just to train you not to talk like that. It, it's drilled deep that uh, this is very bad. <laughs> very bad mission planning and invariably when you come back with the leaf after your three mile run uh, the sergeant major would say no no that's the wrong leaf go get another one <laughs> since we've talked so much about the mission i'd like to talk a little bit about the actual infiltration of the of the crater the misterons have the ability to control all time and space within certain parameters but they can do absolutely anything yet they decide to build a NAF base made of kitchen utensils on a crater in the moon. When the lunar tank with Captain Scarlet and Crow come over the top, they're immediately spotted by the Mysterons, and then they send out these balls with claws on that have the power to pinch and prod, <laughs> and that's it. The, the most terrifying race of aliens and it has been voted as one of the scariest villains in like one of those like top 100 things that Channel 4 did a while ago. And the Mysterons were up there is genuinely terrifying because they occupy everything, all time and space. You can't see them, you can't follow them, they're just there. And this battle is just terrible. They're just these little balls with vertical pincers, so they, it's like trying to trap a very slow-moving kitten with your hand. And they just drop these claws that are meant to pinch, and they look terrible. And then they set out this controlling, whirling dervish kind of thing that just swirls about. It looks dreadful. Yeah, it reminded me of the series one of Robot Wars. Yes, where exactly. It, it, was all, <laughs> it was all billed as a, oh, there'll be death and destruction, but actually everyone just built out of reinforced steel and <laughs> sort of had a, a weapon as a secondary thing, which just couldn't get through reinforced steel, so you just had bread bins bonking into each other for <laughs> like, a whole series. God bless Hypnodisc when that turned up. Oh, that, that was, that was <laughs> a godsend. That was proper. That just ripped everyone to shreds. But yeah, so it was, it was a very Robot Wars-esque, and I didn't like the idea, you know, Captain Scarlet with his moon tractor, as they called it, which was clearly a tank. Yes. Um, <laughs> but in their moon tractor with a turret and tracked vehicle. They could shoot these things, but these things just didn't have the wherewithal to prepare a, uh, a projectile weapon. Yeah, exactly. They had to physically, like, prod you, like poke in Worms Armageddon. They just had to pr prod. <laughs> That, that was their only means of attack. I was actually going to comment on this in a bit, but I may as well do it now. This is one of the elements that was quite realistic, where they're trying to shoot the things from the lunar tractor slash tank, and Lieutenant Green saying, there's too much dust everywhere. And that's very accurate. There would be dust kicking up absolutely everywhere, especially in the basin of a crater. You've got these things rolling around quite quickly. It would kick up a tremendous amount of dust. So that's quite accurate. And also the fact that they got stuck in a trench. That was a real point of concern for the lunar rovers, like the little buggies and the, the lunar cars that the astronauts drove as part of the Apollo missions. There was a real concern of, if this gets stuck in a trench, what are we going to do? We might be able to lift it up, we might not be able to lift it up, but if the car gets stuck, how do you get it out? Like, the craters on the moon are incredibly deep, like kilometres deep. So if you get if you fall into one, you're not getting out. Yeah, didn't Neil Armstrong, when he was landing the first sort of module, wasn't there just dust everywhere and he was just like, I'll just, just keep going down and see when I hit the, the moon. I don't think there was dust, but they almost landed in a crater. So the site that they landed on was not the planned site. The planned site was actually in, like, dangerously close to a crater that they could have accidentally landed in and therefore not got out of. Oh, right. I'm not sure if, if dust was an issue when landing. It certainly wasn't when taking off because, you know, you're just going straight up. But yeah. that's a good point about visibility. I'm not sure on that one. But dust getting kicked up on the moon was quite realistic. There's so much dust everywhere. Yeah, it hangs in the air as well because gravity's less, well, not air. Oh, yeah, but it's still floating above. It takes ages for it to actually settle. 
the plan was, okay, we'll just go up in this neon yellow tank tractor and just waddle up to the base and hope we don't get spotted. Despite the fact it's yellow on a black backdrop, so of course you're going to get spotted immediately by the Mistrons who can see everything, can do everything. So it was a pretty naff plan with a naff battle, but thankfully they managed to get rid of all the, the Mistron attackers and they got into the base. <laughs> when they go in, it's very 60s sci-fi and it looks like the kind of things that would be made in a design and technology lab for GCSE D&T of just these perspex colors with holes cut in them from a laser cutter. It's like, oh, it's a posh school. They've got a laser cutter. Yeah, I mean, I made a pencil case that looked very, very similar <laughs> back in DT lessons. What was the description? It's, it's, yeah. it's indescribable. In my notes I put, I can describe it. It's naff. Yeah, it was like, well, this is kind of standard 60s decor, but you don't realise it because you're in the 60s at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Or cloud base. It's so 70s. Everyone's in like these big ball chairs and it's all like white walls with very bright orange polka dots. So late 60s, early 70s. It's futuristic, but very of its time as a nice oxymoron. Sorry, just a quick one on the previous thing. I liked it when Captain Green, is it Lieutenant Green or Captain Green? Lieutenant Green. I liked it when Lieutenant Green shoots the vehicle and then says, do I get a coconut? Do I get a coconut? If we ever get out of this, Lieutenant, I'll buy you all the coconuts you can eat. Uh, it's supposed to be a joke, but he says it in this weird sort of straight manner, such that you kind of think, "Is it? does he genuinely just want a coconut? Completely, unrela <laughs> com completely unrelated to anything. It's, it's just, oh, it's, you know, Captain Scarlet will turn around and go, it's, it's Lieutenant Green's coconut time now. We'll just, we'll just leave him be. For three minutes. Yeah, there's some voice actors in Captain Scarlet that are not great. In fact, in Thunderbirds as well, some voice acting isn't good. Whereas others, you can tell they're like actors really giving it their all and really trying. Francis Matthews, who does the voice of Captain Scarlet, he, he sounds fine, but Captain Blue, who, who's played by uh, Ed Bishop, he really commits to it. And when he's in distress and when he's like anxious, you can hear that conveyed in the voice. And especially through the puppet as well, which is a nice touch. So it goes to show that people do care. Yeah, it came across in that line. <laughs> yeah, the, like, the one delivered by Cy Grant, I think is the name. Let me look this up. Yeah, Cy Grant is the voice of Tennant Green. Yeah, he, he, he can be a bit monotone. I think he's meant to be doing a French accent. Yeah, there's a few characters you think are doing accents, like Russian or uh, Scottish or something. It's like, are, you, are you doing an accent or are you just weird? Okay, so apparently Green serves as the personal assistant to Spectrum Commander Colonel White and is shown to be an expert in computer programming. He depicts himself as a native of Trinidad and Tobago and is the only non-white officer on cloud base. Now, I did notice that, so there you go. They're trying to do a Trinidadian accent, which I didn't pick up on at all. Ooh, the green fella. Yeah, I, I, I always thought he was slightly French. Didn't realise he was meant to be from Trinidad. But I do like the fact that he is one of the only non-white characters in Captain Scarlet and they just don't mention it at all. He's just there. He's just an equal, and which is great for the 60s. Oh, right, yeah. No, I see it now because they always shoot it light. So, yeah, I said earlier there's not many black characters, but, okay, there is. This seems to be shot in the same sort of... Are you talking about the quality of the film here? Yeah, because I've only just realised he's black. No, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you look at the angels, there's one in the background, I don't know, it's symphony or melody or something. Yeah, seems to have a much darker skin. They wanted more diversity in Captain Scarlet because they didn't really have much in Thunderbirds. So they added in diversity, but they also didn't make a big deal out of it, which I think is the best approach to it. There's nothing worse, like the new Ghostbusters film, when they were just like, oh yeah, women empowerment. And then the film turned out to be like terrible and didn't really do anything with empowering women. Whereas another film that came out at a similar time called Annihilation, which is like a sci-fi horror film but absolutely spectacular film uh, that's got all female cast all protagonist as in like all the protagonists and all the main characters are women but there's no big deal about it they're just women getting on with the story like they could easily have been men they could easily have been women it doesn't matter they're just amazing characters that, that's how it should be you don't make a big deal out of it you just go here is our cast here are the actors go can I just point out the Atomic bomb carrying mechanism. Oh, which... I have notes on this as well. Please t tell me about this. 
Well, you worked as a nuclear physicist. Is this a, the approved way to carry an atomic weapon on a sort of shonky little bit of cord or cable at the front of a vehicle? Because when I was in Hampshire, they had Aldermaster nearby and occasionally they had to drive a nuclear weapon from wherever they keep them to Aldermaston to get, I don't know, refurbished or checked or go for their MOT or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, otherwise, they're not allowed to use it. So, yeah. Uh, you know, or you can't use a nuclear weapon. That's uh, that's not in date. Here's your advisories or whatever. But you'd have umpteen police cars and a big military vehicle, and it was all. It wasn't just randomly held dangling in front of a vehicle at the front. I agree. A way to carry a nuclear bomb. The adjectives that come to mind should not include flimsy. <laughs> it's it's just a big bomb at the end of a flimsy stick on the front of a car, in the same way that you would hold a stinky nappy up in front of you at arm's length and take it to the bin. That's how they were transporting this nuclear weapon on a car. Now you could argue that, oh, well, it's just the moon. If it goes off and kills the driver and the tank and blows up on the moon, no harm, no foul. But initially you're at a base and you're driving away from that base. That's still within the blast radius. That's not very safe. And then when you get into the place where you need to detonate it, you still might have to navigate some very fine areas, at which point you don't want it flimsy. And also, the lunar surface, notoriously not smooth. So therefore, having a very flimsy object on the front of a big stick that's easily shook, like even the footage they used, it's just jangling about on the front of this, <laughs> on the front of this tank. And you're thinking, well, this could just drop at any time. Sure, it would kill the Mysteron, but assuming it's a normal civilian drive, it, that's still not very safe. Yeah, I'm glad it's not just me. I'm not a nuclear expert, but I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure that's not how you, how you transport it. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> sorry, 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 I'm going back to my days in, in Hampshire and driving around Aldermast and every so often. You know when someone's, you go behind a car that's obviously been to B&Q or some other hardware store and has bought some big <laughs> bits of wood and they've put it into their car and just had to tie down their boot with some rope because it's not quite fitting. Yeah. It feels like that. It's quite janky and it doesn't look very futuristic. This is a theme that's running through Captain Scarlet of poorly transported atomic uh, weapons. So in that episode I talked about Big Ben Strikes Back, it starts off where they're transporting a nuclear warhead, an atomic device of some kind. Now, it does, it follows the protocol that you outlined before. You have a police escort, it's in the back of an armoured lorry, it's moving very slowly, but it cuts into the middle of the lorry and the atomic weapon is suspended by eight ropes within the back of a lorry. <laughs> and as it turns around the corner, it like swerves from side to side. So there you go, that's, that's what it looks like in the back of the lorry. Okay, yeah, that's, <laughs> that looks very good, yeah. <laughs> it's not very safe, is it? Um, no. And later on... <laughs> just put some bubble wrap around it, wedge it in a bit. <laughs> yeah, just, just a, a blanket underneath it or something. And when they're going around the corners, it's like moving from side to side. And it's like, it's really shoddy. And I remember thinking as a kid, like, that's not safe. And as an eight-year-old who has a lot of belief to suspend, that did shatter it a little. <laughs> Well, deeply ingrained into you, the uh, safety of nuclear material. Clearly. That's that's kind of the 60s, I guess. N nuclear safety wasn't really up there quite yet. Weren't they, like, testing nuclear bombs in, like, plain sight of everyone in New Mexico anyway? So it was kind of an everyday occurrence that you just wander around with a nuclear bomb and, so, yeah, whatever. So um, what you could do with those in the New Mexico desert, they'd detonate it, and it became a, an event, and the army would be like, oh, we're detonating it today, come along, public. So you'd have your deck chairs out. And then they'd have those, like, a little gimmick, like, oh, take a radiometer test and see how much you've received. <laughs> <laughs> Bloop, 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 bloop. Ooh, that's a lot. <laughs> no more children for you. <laughs> and if you yes. do, they might have tentacles or something. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so we've talked about the... 60s in decor. Yeah, I was also expecting a lava lamp to be in the background, just randomly. Not as a lava lamp, just as a big backdrop. That's how 60s it was. Oh, you mean in, in the Mr. On base on the moon? Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and some go-go dancers. <laughs> in the Mr. On base, there's the crystal in plain view, very much like in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the golden thing on top of the podium. Captain Scarlet has to get the crystal 
from the little, oh, I don't know what it is, just device that controls all the Mistron's regeneration. So they need to get this crystal and they're like, well, I've got these claws and then they're just very slowly trying to pick up the crystal with the claws and it looks like a claw machine. Yeah, I, I wrote down litter picker. Yes, claw machine and litter picker. It has the dexterity of the claw machines in the arcades, and but you don't have the control of a little litter picker. You, you see Captain Scarlet genuinely struggle. And that's actually quite a nice point with the marionette techniques that it's quite hard to make a puppet look like they're struggling intentionally, but this was able to convey the emotions that that character should feel at that point very well. So that was like big points to the puppeteer for that. But what frustrated me was when they did manage to get the crystal, it fell out of the claw, and then Captain Scarlet just immediately picked it up with his hand, and then later on you see him holding the crystal in his bare hands. It's like, well, why didn't you just pick it up in the first place? <laughs> yeah, I was wondering that. Yeah, it's kind of a cliche in films when they have this sort of magical power source or something, and it's always in a, a surrounding, like the magical crystal of the spaceship or whatever, and it's usually near the control room, whereas actually power sources, because they have a lot of energy, you usually put them away from the control room and away in their own building. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, if you think about our power sources where you work in an office and you've got your main fuse boxes of where the, the electricity comes in, in fact, that's a good example of you don't even generate your electricity on site. Another facility generates your power and you pipe it in. So the idea that everything's getting its own power is odd because you usually have a power building. Ah, yeah, but this is on the moon. Well, that, that's it. Yeah, so I'll give them credit. It's a moon base, but even within the military, if you go into a, a headquarters, they don't have a big petrol generator in the middle of the building, sort of headquarters. It's like, well, OK, go and generate electricity over there. And there's usually a primary, secondary and backups and all sorts uh, in case someone comes and nicks one of them or it gets mortared or something. But this sort of trope they have in all sorts of films and especially sci-fi ones where there's this one power source and it's right in the middle of uh, an important facility. It's just like, no, no, you don't design things like that. Why are you doing that? That's wrong. Because it looks good. Yeah, that's it. It's just, it looks good. But engineering-wise, that's wrong. You don't put a big power source next to where people are working. <laughs> Generally, you put them in rooms, if you think about it, you put them in rooms that are away from everyone. You lock the room and you say, danger, important power source, you have to be qualified and do your XYZ qualification, one, two, three, you do not come into this room. P.S. Please don't steal. Yeah, that's it. It's just, just, you are not allowed here. I have this aversion to readily available crystals or power sources or whatever in films that are just on some sort of spinning magical turntable ready to be picked up, as opposed <laughs> to that <laughs> they are in a locked room in a, a dull back-end fuse cupboard away from everywhere else where they should be. Well, a rocket's the only thing fast enough to get there before that bomb explodes. An unmanned rocket. Could it work? There's the slimmest chance, but it's the only one. So one of the things that, like, an aversion that's happened to me recently is unnecessary things brought to the moon, which ever since I've started learning about how fuel economics work and you need this much space and this much fuel to get this much weight to the moon. So Lunaville 6, like the amount of obsolete stuff they brought to the moon did frustrate me a little. And I know it ties into the plot <laughs> that, oh, we'll just fire this old unmanned rocket as a warning message into Crater 101. <laughs> It's like, that rocket is massive. Why did they bring an obsolete rocket to the moon? And they even comment, like, this this is an old rocket. It's an obsolete rocket. Well, why bring it to the moon then? And not only that, why have it prepped and ready to go at a moment's notice? Yeah, the thing I also notice, if a rocket suddenly landed in my back garden, the last thing I'd think of is, right, I've got to give up what I'm doing because a bomb's about to go off <laughs> two hours early. It's just, what, what the hell? Uh, I would, I'd probably... Yeah, even if I was on a mission to the moon, it's like, oh, hang on, a rocket's landed randomly in where I'm executing my mission. That implies to me the Mistrons have taken over the base and are trying to fire back at us. Yeah, that impact into the crater, it looked quite anticlimactic, didn't it? Because it just went, boof, into the soil and just made a bit of a rumble. That is incredibly realistic. That's exactly how it would happen. You wouldn't get an explosion. You might get a bit of spray of debris, but it would just kind of go jump straight into the ground, 
bit of a rumble, no explosion, because it's an impactor, not a detonator. Oh, okay. So that's like points to you for accuracy. That's exactly how it would happen. And like this is in the phase of space travel where they were firing impactors at the moon because man hadn't landed on the moon at this point. This was released in 68 and Apollo 11 landed in 69. So it's still a year off before they actually landed on the moon. Whereas impactors were being fired at the moon to measure the seismology of it. I'm not sure if they took inspiration from that for this, but the way that it landed and how it didn't explode, I thought, oh, that's nice and realistic. So points, points there. It might have been anticlimactic, but it looked real. Yeah, I'd like to point out, though, it's probably so they could keep the number of the rocket intact so it could be read. Oh, that was also really convenient that it was at eye height and not <laughs> yeah. covered and not on the other side of the rocket. Yeah. A bit of script writing when Miss Nolan finds out that oh Captain Scarlet's out of radio range we need to alert him oh we can't do it there's no way we can get to that side of the moon in time before the bomb goes off Ooh, not maybe a rocket could get there and then she's inspired to oh I'll fire the rocket not once does she mention I'll fire the Neptune rocket because that might trigger his memory we have to wait for Captain Scarlet to figure that out whereas if she had just said this might get the message across she doesn't even mention the message she just says it's our only shot and that's it so a bit of setup and payoff would have been nice yes it wasn't signaled correctly yeah signaled that's the correct word so since we're towards the end of the episode i'd like to talk about the like wrap-up of it which is they realize oh no the bomb is going to go off a lot earlier than than planned. So then Captain Scarlet takes charge and goes, Captain Blue, Lieutenant Green, you get in the Moonmobile and drive away. Captain Blue's like, no, I'm going to stay here. And every time this annoys me, it's like, why? Why, Captain Blue? Captain Scarlet knows he can't die. You can go away. Yes, my whole point is it, this would be standard procedure. He's like, oh, it's one of these situations again, Captain Scarlet. You know, good luck. You might be out for a week or two, but there we go. I'm mortal. Yeah, don't worry. I'll feed you cat. I'll yeah. see, see you next week. <laughs> yeah, it's this level of tension in there. But I'm just thinking, well, why? He's just a colleague that, you know, could have two weeks off work or whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's, at the moment, sorry, that's also applicable because a lot of my colleagues are sort of, occasionally you get a phone call saying, oh, I'm working for home from two weeks. My school kid's mate's dog or whatever has come down with coronavirus, so we're in the same class bubble, so I've got to stay at home. So it's, oh, okay, oh, never mind. It's not like getting very tense about it. It's just sort of, coronavirus was sort of big and scary initially, but now it's kind of normalised. So I can get, get the idea that these the bomb's going to go off in 30 seconds is very, very scary initially but it's like all right yeah captain scarlet you know good luck we'll see if you make it this time <laughs> yeah exactly and this is episode 21 by the way and so when captain blue and lieutenant green are on the edge of the crater in the moonmobile looking in and then like oh no he's not going to make it captain scarlet i'm coming back to save you it's like why just <laughs> just go and yeah. pick up his arms and legs once the bomb's gone off put them in the boot of the moonmobile drive back and glue them together when you're back at base Yes, it's one of those things where it does lower the stakes. Yeah, it, it, it lowers the stakes, but it'd be nice to have a bit of... Not only lower the stakes, but kind of like realise that, okay, Captain, you haven't died in space before, so we don't know if you'll survive this one. Or address it like that. Yeah, could uh, work around it. The other thing is you could do a legitimate character exploration of if you've got a colleague that can't die. It'll be all right, we'll go and get him or whatever. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And, uh, you know, what does Captain Scarlet's reaction? Is it, well, yeah, no, it still hurts. <laughs> sort of, there's legitimate character exploration there, but uh, no, never mind. Well, again, it's a kid's show, but children yes. aren't stupid. Like, for example, Pokemon has some genuine character growth. Ash Ketchum, the protagonist, he wants to be the best Pokemon master. And he goes through competitions and gets better and better and better, enters like the league, which is like the Pokemon championship. And he gets quite far through, but then he loses. And then it's about accepting that sometimes you will lose and you might not be the best yet, but you need to stick at it and not throw everything away if you lose first time round. And there is some genuine character growth to it. And it's aimed at the same audience age and demographic as Captain Scarlet was. Children aren't stupid. You can offer this kind of like complex ideas as long as it's presented in an easy to understand manner, but they can have some complicated ideas and they, they will probably appreciate it. Kids like good shows 
obviously there's some awful ones out there that are just loud and flashy, but others have some genuine growth to them and kids like them. So do you have any additional thoughts on the episode or final points you'd like to make? Uh, I enjoyed this one more than the other one because I was looking at it more from a special effects thing. It's, it's a mechanism to string together special effects. And if you put it back in that context, it's, it's really good. But yeah, just forget about plot and character development and all these things that are slightly in the background. And just on that, I've been reading The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. I don't know if you know that book. I don't. But it's a uh, body-swapping, time-hopping murder mystery where the protagonist inhabits different characters each day and he's reliving the same day and can time travel and interact with all sorts of other things. So he's, And then it's a murder mystery so he can hand himself back clues as to who's doing the murder. And there are other people doing this as well who are trying to kill him. So it's an incredibly complex plot. So that that's my background to when I came into this. <laughs> so so yeah, if you if you forget all that, it's genuinely good and the special effects and modeling is brilliant. But yes, no no plot and character development or scientific or military accuracy. Yeah, I think I'm in agreement. This episode is fine. It's if anything a bit disappointing because I love the model aspects of Captain Scarlet and the special effects of the moon bases and the actual vehicles spectacular, but the ones of the Mysterons look dreadful they look cheap and they look just very childish and like i could make them whereas if you look at other episodes of captain scarlet like white as snow for example which features submarines and big ben strikes back which is in the heart of london the modeling and the cityscapes they create are absolutely breathtaking and you look at them thinking this is a model someone has made this and it, it looks incredible whereas the mister on base the lunar crater it's in is brilliant but the base is terrible uh, and I'm with you there on like plot and story it's just a bit bland whereas other episodes there's some genuinely interesting ideas there's one about a bank heist actually with um it's called in the, the heart of new york city and that's about uh bank heist gone wrong and that's a really good episode and again it's just fairly <laughs> small and contained but it's still interesting whereas this it's on the moon should be exciting and it's just kind of not yeah, the, the bank has gone wrong. It's not Reservoir Dogs. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'd love Reservoir Dogs remade by Super Mario Nation puppets. That would be fantastic. Yeah, it would have, yeah, Mr. Blonde dancing maniacally around the cop would not look as maniacal. So that is our episode review of Crater 101 of Captain Scarlet. And considering the episode itself was lacklustre, I feel we should end on a lacklustre wave. Yeah, so this is my favourite part of the show that I pointed out to Andy. He didn't spot it the first time, but at the end, the two characters give the most lacklustre wave I've ever seen in um, television history. So I think that's the most appropriate way to finish. <laughs> in which case, lacklustre wave to you, Rick. And a lacklustre wave to you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>